it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, August 15th, 2022, a new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in today and every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. If you can't listen as we air, that's okay, although we do prefer it. There's a podcast available for free, on demand, whenever the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're new to the show or not familiar with me, welcome. A special welcome, I would say. Glad you are with us. Welcome to the family. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, also a Fox News contributor. I was on America's Newsroom this morning with Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino. Always enjoy that. A clip from that interview is available on our Twitter feed, at Guy Benson Show, also at Guy Benson Show on Instagram if you want to follow us on social. Here's what's in store and on tap today on the radio show. Later this hour, Bill Malugin, one of our tireless, indefatigable correspondents at Fox News covering the border. He is all over that issue, unlike really any other journalist in the country. And he has been reporting some really Uh, extraordinary things that he has been personally witnessing down there in the last couple of days alone. We will check in with Bill Malugin later this hour. In the next hour, Congressman Michael Waltz of Florida. He will be here reflecting on the one-year anniversary of the fiasco in Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal. That was a year ago. Congressman Waltz will be here on that. Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist, former presidential speechwriter. He will also stop by in our middle hour talking about a a shocking incident in New York State involving an attack potentially linked to the Iranian regime, certainly inspired by the Iranian regime, on an author for blasphemy. I mean, it's, it's like this incredibly scary and outrageous thing to happen on U.S. soil. And that's one of several Iran-linked plots and attacks that we've learned about in recent days. Mark Thiessen will be here on that. We'll also get some of his thoughts and analysis on the whole Mar-a-Lago raid that we've been talking about that really dominated last week in the news cycle. And in our final hour, Congressman Ted Budd of North Carolina. He's a sitting congressman now, but he is, he is aspiring to higher office. He is the U.S. Senate nominee for the Republicans in North Carolina, and that is a really important race. Some of these sort of marginal races that should be red, like if any of them tip blue in November, then the Democrats, I would say, very much are the favorites to maintain their majority, if not grow their majority. In states like North Carolina, Wisconsin, I would add to that list, I think Pennsylvania is much more of a toss-up, maybe even lean blue a little bit, but Ohio, for example. These are seats that have to stay red for the Republicans to have any shot at winning back the upper chamber, and so we will talk to Ted Budd 
a little bit later today. As we begin, I want to talk about, well, there's a Politico story that is being shared a fair amount, and this is part of the buzz that we've been covering and discussing on this show, where the media and Democrats are feeling energized. They're like, Democrats have some momentum here. Joe Biden's on a winning streak. The Senate Democrats keep winning. And a lot of the wins, quote unquote, as we've mentioned, are totally bipartisan. They're not Democratic wins. The most significant partisan win this year for Democrats was this so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which I think ultimately certainly not a win for the country and probably not much of a political winner either. The other things that they're listing off, like the Veterans Health Care Bill, like the CHIPS Bill to counter China, like the Gun Safety, School Safety, and Mental Health Bill after Uvalde, like the Sweden and Finland green light into NATO, that was all done overwhelmingly on a bipartisan basis. But they're trying to sort of spin it into a narrative of the Democrats are on the march and Joe Biden is turning his presidency around. That's the claim. And I guess the plan now at the White House is to launch what they're calling a Building a Better America tour. So it's just like another spin on Build Back Better. They have like four words that they use and jam them into everything. Actually, they probably should have just used inflation in there too. Right, because they're also trying to claim everything that they're doing comes through the prism of inflation, even though that's clearly not the case. But they're calling it Building a Better America. That's the tour that it's going to be the president embarking on it. The vice president's going to be out there. Members of the cabinet, they're going to fan out across the country to try to sell the American people on the Inflation Reduction Act that they've just passed. So that's the big blitz that's coming. And White House insiders are saying, you know, this is our moment to sort of turn the page and pivot on what's been a tough time. But now, you know, we're back in the win column and we're going to stay there or whatever. I think there's a few problems with this. Number one, even with all of the hype in the new Fox News poll, the American public splits exactly evenly in support and opposition when asked about the Inflation Reduction Act. And we've cited other polling that shows only 12 or 13% of the public actually thinks it will do what the name says it will, reduce inflation. Inflation being the number one issue affecting voters, for all the obvious reasons. So it is, I think, a tough piece of legislation in some ways to sell. I think it's easy to attack in other ways. And we've been doing that here. We'll have comments from some of our Republican guests later on in the show. The other issue and underlying problem is there is a huge credibility gap from the people who are going to be out there trying to close this deal with the public and to make the sale, right? The president has an approval rating at 40 or below. His approval rating is terrible, right? They're the ones who just, you know, play games with everything. I talked about the intense gaslighting efforts on issue after issue, The American people have internalized that. You can't tell us for many months that the border is secure. You can't tell us that what happened a year ago in Afghanistan was an extraordinary success. 
You can't tell us that two straight quarters of economic contraction is not a recession. You can't say that 8.5% inflation is 0% inflation. You can't say that Build Back Better that would have cost $5 trillion would really have cost $0. You can't do all of that stuff over and over again and then truly believe that you can go out there on some, you know, like whistle stop tour or buses, whatever they're going to do, and convince people that raising taxes in this economy and spending more money in the middle of inflation is a good idea and turn it into a giant political winner that's going to move votes in a significant way in November. I'm just very, very skeptical that that's going to be successful for them. And part of the reason that I'm skeptical is not just because I'm sitting here and I'm rooting against it. It's because there are some very basic questions that they cannot answer well. So, for example, over the weekend, a number of these administration officials were asked about the Inflation Reduction Act. That's what they chose to call it. No one forced them to call it that. No one forced them to go with that spin. They could have called it the climate change and health care bill and just sort of said, well, don't worry, it's not going to cause inflation. There's another problem with credibility, right? They said the $2 trillion rescue plan wouldn't cause inflation. It did. They said that the inflation wasn't going to happen. It did. They said it was going to be transitory. It wasn't. So they could have gone with that again, just being like, oh, don't worry, we can spend a bunch more money and raise taxes, and it's not going to impact inflation. But they didn't. They decided to call the bill, the legislation, put a name, just slap a name on it, inflation reduction. So that raises questions. It begs questions. Okay, how's that going to work? especially when experts and nonpartisan analysts have found the opposite, that it would have, if anything, maybe a bit of an increase in inflationary effect in the early days and then virtually no impact down the line. So Corinne Jean-Pierre, the spokesperson at the White House, she was on ABC. Jonathan Carl asked her this question using the word Orwellian in terms of the labeling here, the marketing. Cut 12, listen to this. Congressional Budget Act uh, Office, which is nonpartisan, said that there would be a negligible impact on inflation this year and barely impact inflation at all uh, next year. I mean, isn't it almost Orwellian? How can you call it Inflation Reduction no. Act when the nonpartisan experts say it's not going to? So I appreciate that. Down? I appreciate the question. We've actually addressed this, the, the CBO. It was the top line number. Here's the thing: we have 126 economists, both in the uh, both Republicans, yeah. both Democrats, who have said it's going to fight inflation. We have five former uh, Secretary so uh, Secretary of Treasury. The of, well, of there's CBO. more to it. It's just it it was the way that Republicans did that was so that it could make an argument that is false that just doesn't make any sense that what what did republicans do this is a cbo assessment this is a nonpartisan cbo assessment in a congress completely run by the democrats this is not about a falsehood from republicans but that's i mean did she give a substantive answer there no she said well we have a letter with these economists who say that it will be good on inflation. Well, there's another counter letter from even more economists, I believe. They have, what, 160 saying it will reduce inflation? I saw a letter floating around at 230 economists saying that it won't. And that's what CBO has found. It's what other nonpartisan assessments and analyses have found, including the Penn Wharton study that Joe Manchin used to always treat almost like you know the Bible until all of a sudden he didn't. So how can you call it the Inflation Reduction Act? She said, well, it's the lying Republicans, and they did it that way, and ignore the CBO because that's not really real, but we've got a letter. 
Does that sound persuasive to you? Then you had Jennifer Granholm, the energy secretary, famous for bursting into laughter last year when she was asked about reducing oil costs and fuel costs. Remember that? Big belly laugh from Jennifer Granholm back then. Here's Secretary Granholm on CNN. Get a load of this answer in Cut 14. What specifically will this bill do to lower costs for Americans right now? Oh, I, this, this, first of all, immediately, um, people will be able to lower the fuel costs in their home. There's a 30% tax credit that you can claim in 2022 for installing energy-efficient windows, heat pumps, energy-efficient appliances. That is right away. And on top of that, of course, if uh, citizens want to install solar panels on their roofs so that they can generate their own power, that's another 30% tax credit. Um, And, of course, there's the tax credits that are at the dealership for the automotive sector, for electric vehicles. So, and if you install an electric vehicle charging station in your home, you can also get a tax credit. Okay, so she's listing off a bunch of things where you could claim a tax credit if you spend a lot of money. So you put out a bunch of outlays to put expensive solar panels on your roof or a charging station for a car in your garage. By the way, electricity going up the inflation on the inflation rate on electricity still up 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 that was not flat or down it was up it's not free but you do that you buy an electric car you can get all these wonderful tax credits that's her answer on a a very basic question how does this bill help families reduce their costs immediately and the answer is well if you have thousands of dollars to spend retrofitting your house or getting a new car, a very expensive new car that most Americans cannot afford, then you can apply for and get a tax credit and be rewarded for those green things that you're doing in your life. But what if you don't have hundreds or thousands of dollars lying around, as most Americans don't? We know a large majority of Americans right now report they are living paycheck to paycheck. Things are badly squeezed. People are trying to choose between basic living expenses and what they can tighten and what they can maybe cut out of their budget because things are really tough right now. It is not helpful to say, well, go buy a $60,000 electric vehicle and you can get a $7,500 tax credit down the line for that. That's fabulous for a rich family making just under $300,000. They'd be eligible for that, for that tax credit paid for by an IRS on steroids scrounging around your, you know, your couch cushions for spare change. You know, they claim it won't affect you, but I don't think many people believe that based on the way the IRS, uh, you know, operates. So you've got tax increases that are going to affect a lot of people across the income spectrum. You're going to have this big, much more muscular, doubled in size IRS. All of that money is coming in to help give tax credits for these green expenses that most people can't afford in the first place. And that's the answer that she gave on how this is going to reduce people's costs immediately, where you have to go out and spend thousands of dollars to get some of it back courtesy of taxpayers. That's the big savings plan, the anti-inflation plan, she claims, that will benefit families right away. Most families, I think, hear that and say, that does not describe our reality at all. 
And this is why they're trying to shoehorn their competing narratives into one bill. And you can't say this is a great, huge, unprecedented investment, quote unquote, in our you know, environment and green stuff. And also it's going to reduce inflation and save people a bunch of money. They're not compatible. They can try with answers like that. It's not going to work, I don't think. A few more examples of this that I'll get to as soon as we come back. We are just getting going. A new week on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Our Fox colleague Jackie Heinrich reporting moments ago that President Biden is going to sign the so-called Inflation Reduction Act into law tomorrow at the White House. So thus begins, I guess, the Building a Better America tour, where they're going to try to sell this thing. How's that going? Well, here's Congresswoman Jayapal from Washington State. She's the chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus. She had some interesting thoughts about the word inflation and that term in general, cut 15. Inflation is like a theoretical word that economists use, but what families feel every day is the up or down of costs. I mean, the up of costs is what inflation is. It's like, you know, with all due respect, Pramila Jayapal, inflation is not some sort of, you know, like esoteric, arcane term that only super smart economists with their PhDs from MIT can possibly understand. It's a theoretical word that uh, that economists use. No, it's an obvious phenomenon that people are feeling. Maybe she's just, I don't know what she's trying to do there. But probably not a great sign when they're trying to sort of deflect away from the word itself, just on recession. Meanwhile, here's Congressman Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland, being asked about this. Wait till the very end, cut 29. As soon as the act goes into uh, effect... I hope that all of the provisions will begin to work. I am. Uh, I, I know that those who've been blaming President Biden for the inflation going up are now giving President Biden all the credit for inflation going down. So we're moving things in the right direction already. Yeah, and what parts of the bill do you think will will quickly work on that specifically? The, the, uh, next question. <laughs> so wait, which part of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act will actually work quickly to reduce inflation? Uh, next question, says the Democratic congressman. Yeah. The Building a Better America tour is underway. Off to a striking start, is it not? Bill Malugin joining us, talking about the border crisis. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free of charge every day. And joining us now from Eagle Pass, Texas at the southern border, is Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News. Bill, good to have you back. Hey, guy. Good to be with you as always, my friend. Well, I've been watching, as I always do, your Twitter feed, and I could be perhaps perceiving this wrong. It's sort of hard to tell just because you have been reporting on this and documenting this problem for so long now that it's sometimes difficult to discern whether what you're seeing in any given moment is just more of the endless same or actually significantly worse, but at least as far as my perception goes, the last couple of days, what you've been reporting, including with lots of images and 
drone footage and, and other footage that you've collected, it seems like the groups that you are personally witnessing crossing the border are unusually and strikingly large. Is that correct, or am I, am I mischaracterizing it? Am I misperceiving it? Nope, that is absolutely correct. I'd say these last 48 to 72 hours in Eagle Pass have been some of the most remarkable we've seen during our border coverage. It is just massive group after massive group after massive group nonstop all day long. You'll have a group of 400, then an hour later a group of 300, then 30 minutes later a group of 250, then another group of 200, then another group of 200, then a couple groups of 100. And that's you're into the mid-afternoon. That doesn't even count for the evening yet. So just to put it in perspective for you, in the last 24 hours alone here in Del Rio sector, there have been 2,202 illegal crossings. That does not include Godaways. That is only one day in one single sector here on the U.S. border. One day, more than 2,000 people. I mean, 2,200 people in a single day in one sector, not counting Godaways. I mean, again, we throw out all these huge numbers, right? You know, 2 million encounters, uh, close to 900,000 gotaways, you know, all of these different stats. You know, every month there's, there's a new number on encounters. There's a new estimate on, on gotaways. It's kind of hard to keep it all straight. But 2,200 people just in that one sector that you happen to be covering right now in 24 hours is just wild. I, I saw one of your other tweets as you cover all this, that at least at the moment, because sometimes the Mexican authorities at least assist in some way or make a show of trying to help with enforcement on the other side to prevent crossings. And at least what you've been seeing recently, that has not been happening, right? It's just the U.S., the overwhelmed U.S. officials waiting for these giant groups. That's exactly right. We've seen absolutely zero effort from the Mexicans. Uh, normally when we're down here, we'll at least see some of their pickup trucks from the state police driving on the opposite side of the river, uh, at least depending on their patrolling. Uh, this time we've seen no such thing. It's just been a real the Mexican side. These massive groups are able to cross without any fear or interference whatsoever. And it's just, it's nonstop. I mean, just since October where we are, there have been 401,000 illegal crossings. Okay, that's bigger than the population of New Orleans. And again, that's one sector on the border. There's eight other sectors. There are nine sectors on the southern border. There are four in Texas, a couple in Arizona, four in California. And everything we've been showing, tweeting, and reporting on the air has just been one tiny little sector here in Texas. It does not include the Rio Grande Valley. Doesn't include El Paso, doesn't include Laredo, doesn't include Tucson or Yuma, doesn't include El Centro, doesn't include San Diego. Um, so that could just kind of put it in perspective of we're getting a tiny little snapshot of what's happening in one part of the border, and the numbers here are so incredibly large. And it's just a really tough pill to swallow for people that have to hear the administration constantly insisting the border is closed and it's operationally secure. If they would come down here and take a look at this, I don't believe there is any way they could say that with a straight face. And just to give some context here, you're hearing Bill Malugin's cell phone, and there's a lot of wind. It's it's stormy weather down there, and so sometimes you just you can't avoid it. Bill's out there reporting in the elements, so that's what you're hearing. In case you're wondering why the cell phone sounds the way it does, but to that point, Bill, some of the video footage that you've been posting and that you've been putting on the air, even though it is you know pouring rain and windy and all of this, despite the elements. You still have large groups coming across, even with the rivers, you know, swollen with more water and rushing faster. 
that is certainly more dangerous, and yet the sort of the drumbeat continues, right? Yeah, absolutely. And sorry about the win. I'm, I just moved behind a big bush, so hopefully that uh, that blocks some <laughs> right. of it out. But that that's correct. It's been storming, raining all day long. The river's really fat right now. Not a good time to cross, but we've still been seeing all morning long people crossing right in front of us. They don't. It, it doesn't matter where it's a, whether it's 110 degrees or it's cold and raining. Nothing really seems to slow any of the activity down. Once these people pay the cartels, uh, they want to get across as fast as possible, and that's what we witness. And unfortunately, sometimes that costs the migrants their lives, whether they get stranded out in the heat or they drown in the river. Um, but what we've noticed is there's really nothing that stops them from making attempts. Every now and then, we'll have a couple slow days in a row, uh, slow days in a row, where we won't have a whole lot of activity, and then boom, the next four days in a row. It'll just be nonstop, and that's typically the cartels just refilling their stash houses with more human cargo, people paying, and then they get ready to move them across again. It's been happening day after day after day after day for more than a year and a half now. Yeah, and so he is in this particular sector, Del Rio, and that's where we did the show from months ago, and we went down to see all this for our for ourselves, and in case you couldn't pick up some of the stats he was giving you there with some of the wind blowing a moment ago – This is the area where they witnessed more than 2,200 illegal crossings in 24 hours. 2,200 in 24 hours. And in that same single sector in Texas, there have been well over 400,000 illegal crossings since the 1st of October. Since the 1st of October, 400,000 plus in that one sector alone. That, within the Del Rio sector, represents a one 100% increase, a doubling over the previous year. And yet the line from the administration is that the border is secure. The border's closed. It's operationally controlled by the U.S. government. And the numbers tell a different story, especially those gotaway numbers, Bill. So I've got to ask, because you and I chatted last month. We do this. It's like a ritual. Every month, the new numbers come out. And in June, there was a slight dip. It was still, you know, the biggest June on record in DHS history. It was still a huge number, over 200,000 in terms of encounters, 50-plus thousand known gotaways, four consecutive months of 200,000, you know, plus uh, in that one category. And you were telling us, based on what you were witnessing in July, you thought, you know, the problem was still raging. Obviously, the numbers that you're seeing right now in August are are just mind-blowing. Do you have any sense of what the July numbers are going to look like? When will we get those? What are you hearing? Yes, I'm hearing they're going to be a little bit lower than June. Uh, multiple Border Patrol sources tell me on their end they were just north of about 180,000 apprehensions last month. That does not include CBP's OFO, that's Office of Field Operations, which are the ports of entry. So that number will go up a little bit more. Uh, but July could potentially be the first month in, I think, four or five months where we are under 200,000. Now, again, that could be because uh, July is one of the hottest months out here down at the border, and we now have more single adults coming across rather than family units. Keep in mind, when it was family units, everybody gets counted, right? Mom, dad, two little kids. Now we're having massive groups of single adults, more than 60% of what's coming across. So they're just counted as one person each. But from what I'm hearing, uh, the numbers are going to be a little bit lower than June, and I could get those numbers as soon as the end of the day today. Typically, DHS has to file a court filing on the 15th of each month. 
um, where they it's part of a lawsuit against uh, with Texas and Missouri. They reported on the 15th their numbers, their monthly numbers, and today's the 15th. So I'm anticipating I should be able to get those numbers by the end of the day. Um, but it sounds like July might be a little bit lower uh, than June. But if you look at the big picture, say if we go back to July of 2020, it's probably going to be four, five times bigger than July 2020. In terms of gotaways, it seems like the estimates that you've gotten have been pretty consistent in the 50000 a month range. Does that sound about right again based on what you've heard and seen? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The gotaways stay pretty consistent. They usually bounce between low 50s to high 50s of, of you know, 50,000 to 60,000 gotaways per month. Um, just since the fiscal year started on October 1st, um, multiple Border Patrol and DHS sources confirmed there have been more than half a million um, confirmed gotaways. And when you add that with the roughly 400,000 of fiscal year 2021, we're pushing over 900,000 now. Before this year's over, we will have hit more than 1 million gotaways at the southern border. More than a million gotaways. And that's, you know, I know we talk about this. Sometimes people say, oh, you you can't claim that the borders open or not secure because so many of these numbers are about the people getting caught. And if they're getting caught, then it means that the border is secure. Well, we're, we're closing in on a million people that we know of who have gotten away, not to mention the unknown gotaways. They're not, you know, that's an unknowable number of people. But we're closing in on a million known gotaways. And then, of course, there's just the sort of catch and release policy where people technically get caught processed and then released into the country in huge numbers and a lot of them never show up for court dates and so that's like another form of sort of de facto open borders even though technically there's you know a processing point along the way bill i have to ask you then and it's related title 42 we heard from congressman gonzalez who represents south texas he was on the show last week he says in his estimation from what he's seeing they are basically, the administration is phasing out enforcement of Title 42, and, and those sort of, you know, removals from the country are, are trickling down to a very small flow. And now, formally, the Remain in Mexico policy is gone. What impact do those two policies have on the broader picture? Well, they are barely enforcing Title 42. Just to give you an idea, just a few days ago out here, uh, about 1,970 people came across in one day, and only 370 were expelled via Title 42. That's only about, like, 19%. In Yuma, Arizona sector, there were 699 crossings. Only five people were expelled via Title 42. That's less than 1%. So they are barely using it in certain sectors. The reason why it's not being used here in Del Rio sector is because most of the people crossing are Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans. And Mexico won't take them back, and neither will their home countries. So we can't expel them, and their home countries won't take them back. So the only thing we're able to do under this administration is release them. Now, the Biden administration hasn't made any effort to change that. They haven't tried twisting Mexico's arm. They haven't tried calling their home countries and cutting some sort of a deal. They're just letting it happen. They mass release them. And that is why we see these massive numbers of these demographics showing up here every single day, waving to our cameras, asking us, where do we find Border Patrol? Can you call them for us? They want to be caught because they know they're going to get released. They have no fear of being removed from the country or deported. They know once they get here, they're in. It's that simple. Then there are the people who don't want to get caught because they would get arrested. They've got felony records and that kind of thing. We have no idea and can't know how many of them are represented in the gotaway population, which is a large source of concern to me. But we do see in the encounters 
on a consistent basis, you always report on them, Bill, and I know the Border Patrol guys will tweet out and send out lists and that sort of thing. There's also a steady stream of people that are getting caught, to say nothing of those who aren't getting caught, on the public safety side of it. And I feel like we have virtually the same conversation every month, and yet we're going to keep telling the story until something changes. And so feel free, if in the time that we have left, to weigh in on that point, because it's That's another interminable factor that just keeps coming that represents an actual public safety threat as well on top of all the other issues. You're absolutely right. Look, just in the last couple of days alone, uh, Border Patrol here in Del Rio sector caught a convicted rapist with a, a conviction for forcible sodomy. In Miami, Florida sector, they caught a Haitian on a boat with 100 other Haitians who's a convicted child sex offender. He was convicted of fondling a child as well as kidnapping. And then just yesterday, Border Patrol in Tucson, Arizona report, they caught a Mexican national who crossed illegally uh, who has a previous conviction for first-degree manslaughter in New York City. That's just two days. And those are just a few of the ones they caught. Every single day they are reporting these criminal arrests as well as the, the arrests of large amounts of gang members, primarily 18th Street and MS-13 gang members. So yeah. we'll never know how many of them are in the, the gotaways, but the ones they do catch, uh, it's, it's enough to raise eyebrows and cause a lot of concern because those arrests are being announced every single day here at the board. Yeah. And some people say, well, that's fear-mongering and that's scapegoating and that's stereotyping. There's a reason I didn't lead with it. There's a reason why I asked it almost last. It is still part of the reality and still an important component to this whole discussion. And you mentioned someone who was, you know, who had been convicted in New York City. I wonder if perhaps that particular illegal immigrant could be bussed back to New York City and see what Mayor Adams would have to say about that. Have you been following that war of words at all, Bill, quickly? Oh, I, oh, I certainly have. Absolutely, yes. And uh, Texas officials, I can tell you, are getting very pissed off with what Mayor Adams has been saying, uh, implying that migrants are being forced onto the buses for 45 hours and they have no water or food. They say that is absolutely not true. They actually let us onto their buses exclusively today uh, to show us what they're stocked with, with all the water, with the food. They say the migrants, they showed us the waivers, the migrants signed. They get to pick which city they want to go to. Um, and uh, I, I'd say right now, Governor Abbott's strategy here is working because he's kind of pulled back the curtain on these sanctuary cities and when push comes to shove when they actually have to deal with illegal immigration and they get them in their cities we've seen the reaction they're calling the national guard they're asking for federal federal help and they're essentially freaking out about it when attacking texas yeah minuscule numbers i mean again 2200 here just yesterday and mayor eric adams is complaining about 300 in one week yeah it's like some of these Blue city mayors would rather talk about being a sanctuary city than deal with the consequences of being a sanctuary city in the era of this border crisis. Bill Malugin at the border in Eagle Pass, Texas, our guest, national correspondent here at Fox News. Bill, stay dry. If you can, keep up the good work. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, guys. Sounds good. Appreciate you. Stepping aside, coming right back on The Guy Benson Show after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, just picking up sort of where we left off there with Bill Malugin. This happened over the weekend. The U.S. State Department put out an advisory to U.S. citizens in multiple Mexican cities, particularly in Baja, California, ordering U.S. government employees in those cities to shelter in place due to intense drug cartel battles and violence. Tijuana, Mexicali. 
and you can search Twitter feeds and social media and see some of the videos and hear some of the fighting in the streets. It's just very disturbing. We talked to Malugin, one of our colleagues at Fox, Matt Finn, another national correspondent. He tweeted earlier he did a short cruise to celebrate his mother's birthday, and they had a few ports of call, including in Mexico, and one of the ports of call was deemed just too dangerous, so they couldn't get off the ship. Now, we have problems in this country with crime, and we talked about that quite a lot here. Mexico, in some ways, is just a narco state, and sometimes feels like a failed state, where the government does not have control over the country. And they're in a full-blown war with the drug cartels to the point that, you know, you've got U.S. government officials told to shelter in place because of the violence in some of these cities just over the weekend. I learned when I went down to the border that the human trafficking along the border, totally dominated and controlled by the cartels, that is $100 million a week that they're making, a week on the human trafficking. That money is fueling this drug war and the violence. I mean, we talk about blood on hands all the time in our politics. There's a lot that the Biden administration should have to answer for when it comes to their border policies. Another hour coming up on the Guy Benson Show. You don't want to miss it. Congressman Michael Waltz, straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour here on the guy benson show this new week underway here on the broadcast thank you so much for tuning in GuyBensonShow.com is our website the podcast is free every day on demand if you can't listen between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert here in the middle hour. The Dow in the green today, up 151 points at the close, ending at 33,912. Joining us now is Congressman Michael Waltz a Republican from Florida's 6th Congressional District. Congressman, always good to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. I want to first play for you a soundbite. This is from President Biden in July of last year. So a year ago last month in advance of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, here is what the president told the American people in Cut 11. When I announced our drawdown in April, I said we would be uh, out by September. And we're on track to meet that target. Our military mission in Afghanistan will conclude on August 31st. The drawdown is proceeding in a secure and orderly way, prioritizing the safety of our troops as they depart. Our military commanders advised me that once I made the decision to end the war, we needed to move swiftly to conduct the main elements of the drawdown. And in this context, speed is safety. And uh, thanks to the way in which we have managed our withdrawal, no one, no one U.S. forces or any forces have uh, have been lost. All right. So that was last July. Secure and orderly, he said. That would characterize the drawdown 
Speed is safety, he said, which is why they were doing it so fast. It's been well-managed, it's been swift, and we haven't lost anyone. And a few weeks after that, Congressman, history will tell a very different story about how this actually played out. We're a year on from that. Your reflections. Yeah, Guy, let's just um, let's take stock for a moment where we are uh, a year later, and then we can get into the just, I don't know if it was just ignorance or um, lies that, that the president was telling at the time. But you know, here we are a year later. Uh, we still have Americans stuck in Afghanistan, uh, despite the fact that we've pulled out eight times uh, by the president, Secretary Blinken, who said there was only about 100 uh, at the time. We now know we've pulled out 800 since then. Americans still stuck. Our allies by the tens of thousands who stood and fought with us also still stuck uh, there and trapped and being hunted down, which I can tell you definitively absolutely is happening, are being hunted down as we speak, not to mention the equipment that was left behind, not yep. to mention that girls can't go to school, women can't go to work. Our credibility has been uh, severely damaged, if not destroyed in some places. And to top it all off, al-Qaeda is back in Kabul, just as they were before 2001. And despite all of that, the president is going to stand before the world and before the nation and say this was an extraordinary success. And therefore, you know, I think the thing that just pisses me off the most and so many other veterans is there has been zero, none, zilch in terms of accountability not a single person fired, relieved, resigned uh, because of this absolute debacle. Well, the White House communications director, one of their top comms people, Kate Bedingfield, she was on MSNBC and basically said, you know, no regrets here. And that's very much of a piece with what you just said. I mean, we were watching people clinging to airplane tires and plummeting to their deaths and explosions in the streets and the Taliban putting hardened terrorists in charge of you know security in the city and these horrible stories of people not getting through Americans being beaten by some of these Taliban people outside uh, the airport. I mean, it was just an absolute fiasco playing out in real time. And the president called it an extraordinary success in that context. It's not like he, he waited a few months and hoped that people might forget what had really had happened and, and what it had looked like and felt like. He called it an extraordinary success as it was all falling apart. And they've never wavered from that. They are just saying, basically, some stuff is regrettable, but this is a successful thing that happened. And I just don't know what to say to that. Even if you fully support the idea of getting our military fully out of Afghanistan, most Americans were in favor of that. I think if you phrase the question a little differently and have a residual force just to maintain some order and avoid what happened, I think those public opinion numbers might look a little different. That doesn't matter anymore. Even if you were totally on board for the outcome, the way it was done was anything but secure and orderly and safe and all the things they promised it would be. And then in front of the horrified eyes of the world, it went down the way it did. And their argument was this is an extraordinary success, historic in nature. This airlift is incredible. I mean, it was, I think, the beginning of the big credibility problem for him that has only deepened since. Well, just so, Guy, a couple of points there on the polling. 
when you ask the question differently, you know, get everybody out, even if that means the homeland will be threatened again and ISIS and al-Qaeda will, will have free reign to rebuild and attack us again, you get a very different answer, which is exactly what we're seeing happening and exactly what the intelligence community is briefing us in Congress is happening. Al-Qaeda and ISIS attend attack us again. They're developing the capability to do so under the umbrella of this Taliban caliphate. Point one. Point two, a lot of the left, what you're also seeing on MSNBC and others is, well, this was really Trump's fault. He started us down this road. He signed the Doha agreement. And look, I publicly oppose that agreement simply for the fact that I've had to sit across the table from the Taliban. I didn't trust him for a second to uphold uh, their end of the bargain. Uh, but the fact is, and this is what they can't work around, when President Trump's advisors came him in the waning days of the administration and said the Taliban haven't lived up to their end, he left the troops there. Uh, and the thing that really just beguiles me is how does Biden with a straight face completely reverse course on so many Trump policies from Keystone Pipeline to the Iran deal, but yet somehow, you know, his supporters want to argue that he was stuck with this one. I mean, it just does, it just flies in the face of any uh, credibility. And finally, to your point, the two things that, that Biden ran on were competence and compassion. And I can't think of anything I've seen that was more cold-hearted uh, and more incompetent than how this withdrawal was done. And yeah, you're right, was... his poll numbers, you know, that just have taken an absolute, that was the beginning of the dive in terms of uh, his numbers. No, it was disgusting. Um, I remember feeling sick watching it all happening, and that that feeling in the pit of my stomach is back a little bit as I watch this coverage a year later. And I think for many Americans, it is still a very dark stain because our national honor was harmed. Our national honor was was stained by this because we made promises to Americans and to American allies that we didn't keep. Biden went on TV and said we would not leave any Americans behind. We would not leave any of our allies behind because we had pledged to them with the sacred honor of the United States of America that they had risked their lives for us and we were going to keep the promise to them. And then that just did not happen. Uh, to the tune of, you said, 800 Americans taken out, eight times the number, the official number that the administration gave us. And untold numbers of allies who are still stuck there. You hear little examples and stories and anecdotes from time to time of, of the, the suffering and the fear and this, this you know ongoing panic that they're living through every single day. Some of the pushback that you hear, Congressman, is, well, and, and this is how you know people will always move the goalposts, they would have uncritically shared the 100 Americans number a year ago which obviously was not even close to true because we know of at least 800 that we've gotten back, they'll say, well, that's another example of the administration keeping the promise because they didn't lose sight of those people even after they were out of the news cycle, except, unless I'm wrong about this, Congressman, a lot of the retrieved Americans and allies have been through tireless private efforts with sometimes at best tenuous assistance from the Biden administration, if not like almost outright interference in some cases. I think for them to try to turn that into a success story, just like they were trying to turn the historic airlift thing into a success story, I think that really, again, strains credulity based on what has actually happened and who's been doing this work. 
Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and I could tell you I'm still in touch with so many of these groups, uh, Task Force Pineapple, Dynamo, Afghan EVAC. I mean, these were, these were men and women, many of whom quit their jobs, uh, many of whom have since exhausted their personal savings uh, to, to live up to that promise. Uh, that we never leave a fallen comrade and we never leave, whether it's our allies or, or Americans. Here's the thing, guy, they're still at it. They're not going to let go. Uh, they are still shuffling these people around from safe house to safe house as the Taliban are trying to hunt them down. And you get the, just the worst of bureaucraties, um, kind of apathetic answers uh, from the State Department in terms of how and when they're going to get these people out. And it just breaks my heart. And many of these groups have had to bring in mental health specialists. We've seen a double-digit increase in calls to the VA suicide hotline. I do want to say um, very quickly to all the veterans listening out there, your sacrifice was not in vain. We kept an entire generation safe from planes flying into buildings or suicide bombers going you know, off in shopping malls. Um, you know, we kept the problem over there rather than in our backyard. But to then have the commander-in-chief just basically shrug his shoulders was a slap in the face to so many. And to get these bullshit answers back from their own government has so many going to a, a, a very dark place, man. And uh, for anybody out there that is doing that, please call, uh, please call 988, which is the, the suicide prevention hotline. Yeah, I think that's a very important message to send particularly to troops, people who are struggling. And I think a lot of those feelings are probably going to flood back with this anniversary and with the the coverage sort of picking the scab off the wound. And it's not a scab, to your point, for a lot of people who are still living it day in and day out, whether over here, worried about it, over there, living it. And you don't get to preside over a fiasco like this and then take credit for the work that other people are trying to do to keep a promise that you broke. And that's to some extent what you're seeing some of these defenders of the administration attempting. One point that they'll also make, Congressman, and I'm curious to get your thought on this, is you said, look, the the threat is reconstituting. And the reason that we went to war in Afghanistan in the first place was to make sure that the regime that harbored al-Qaeda – which attacked us on 9-11, that they would not be able to continue to basically use that country and allow that country to be a jumping-off point for international terrorism. The regime was the Taliban. They were in cahoots with al-Qaeda. That was the whole purpose of the war in Afghanistan. And you said that threat, that threat matrix, those relationships are all coming back into place, which obviously is a concerning thing. The, The pushback would be, well, look at what just happened to al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda. Even with the U.S. gone from Afghanistan, our intelligence was good. We found him. We took him out. No collateral damage. So maybe some of this is starting to build back up, but the -the over-the-horizon capabilities of our military and our intelligence services, not with boots on the ground, that is sufficient because, you know, we were able to take out this high-level guy. Is that a fair point? Is it a complete point? Well, and just one more point, Guy, on, sure. the, on the administration taking credit for the, the evacuation, which is really just focused on the trees and losing sight of the forest, is 
they got out the wrong people, right? I mean, they keep pounding the table that they got 130,000 out, but yet in the same breath, we now know that there's 75,000 SIV holders that are still there on top of the Americans that they've had to since uh, get out. So again, just totally lacks credibility and it's insulting. Um, on the ongoing counterterrorism threat, look, Zawahri, I'm glad he's dead and give the administration full credit, but we cannot conflate someone who is largely a symbolic figure that the CIA has been tracking now with tremendous resources for 20 years. Uh, and that inexplicably to me, and this is where I have a lot of questions, has went from uh, an intense campaign to stay hidden uh, and successfully did so to suddenly felt so comfortable that he was living out in the open in one of the nicest neighborhoods of Kabul uh, in the guest house of the Taliban number two, uh, Siraj Haqqani. What did they promise him? What did they believe was the deal uh, with the United States that suddenly he would come out in the open? Uh, like that. So it was a tremendous victory, but we shouldn't conflate getting someone out in the open that we've been looking for for years with the ability to keep a lid on terrorism growing again. The UN uh, set aside the intelligence that I can't get into, uh, but the UN has said 10 to 15,000 foreign fighters are flowing from the Middle East back into Afghanistan. The Taliban are the rock stars of the jihadi movement. They finally realized Osama bin Laden's dream, which was to have a functioning caliphate. Uh, and, and, and I'm telling you, the intelligence community is ringing the alarm bells that they are building the capability to, to, to hit us again. And the operational wow. leaders of al-Qaeda are still staying hidden. Uh, Zawahiri wasn't running the show anymore. The ones that are running the show, one of them is his son-in-law, uh, are staying hidden, and they're developing the, the ability to hit us. Well, that is frightening, and that's unfortunately the note that we have to leave on for now and leave it off with Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, a military veteran. Obviously, you can hear the passion in his voice on this issue one year later after the U.S. withdrawal, the chaos and the bloodshed as we left Afghanistan the way that we did. Congressman, thank you so much for your time and your insights. All right. Thank you, guys. The Guy Benson Show is back after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. A quick look at the midterms and a new poll out of the state of Texas from the University of Texas at Tyler in that gubernatorial race. I've seen some buzz and chatter, especially in sort of the lefty media, which is most of it, in the last couple of weeks about Beto O'Rourke on the march, Beto Mentum, etc. And some polls indeed had shown the Democrat challenger to Greg Abbott, the incumbent governor, pulling to within low to mid single digits. Well, this poll has Abbott at 46 percent support, up seven on Beto O'Rourke, who's at 39 percent. So that's a seven point lead for Abbott. Among those certain to vote, so the most motivated voters, Abbott is up by 10 points, 51 to 41. And I would say. Still, you know, Republicans can take nothing for granted. O'Rourke should not be anywhere near the governor's mansion, but he's making money hand over fist, tons of it from out of state. It's not a great number for Abbott, 46% as an incumbent, especially in a state like Texas, in an environment like this. But what an awful number for Beto, 39%. He has huge name ID. 
built up over the Senate race and the presidential race, now the governor race. Everyone knows him in Texas. They've all heard of Beto O'Rourke, and he's at 39% in this poll. So I'd like to see that margin grow, but a decent number overall for the Abbott campaign. We're watching it on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Our website here at the show is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free and on demand. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. With us now is Mark Thiessen, columnist at the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, former presidential speechwriter. Mark, great to have you back. Great to be with you, Guy. So I read with interest the latest column from George F. Will, a fellow columnist at the Washington Post, and he is, I think it's very safe to say, no fan of the former President Donald Trump. He has been one of the loudest and most searing critics of Donald Trump in the right-of-center commentariat. That being said, his column about the Mar-a-Lago raid made a number of important points. Let me just read a couple sentences from George Will's column. Quote, One remarkable aspect of this debacle is that vigorous disgust need not wait until we know those answers. He was talking about answers to some questions, such as, try to imagine a justification for this flamboyant exercise of what? Law enforcement? What was important enough to bring to a rolling boil the already simmering suspicions of tens of millions of Americans about tentacles of the, quote, deep state engaging in partisan skullduggery? He concludes this nation is running low on an indispensable ingredient of a successful society, trust in institutions and one another. This week was another subtraction. Merrick Garland has said about the Justice Department, quote, we will and we must speak through our work. Actually, his political duty is to explain and justify his work more thoroughly than he did in his minimalist uh, statement Thursday afternoon. Uh, interesting stuff, considering the source there from George Will. What do you make of it, Mark? Uh, he's 100 percent right. Uh, look, the, the, here's the problem. First of all, mishandling of classified information is a serious matter. Um, and a discussion of this. At the same time, the FBI and the Justice Department have completely destroyed their credibility and, tr- and trust in their object with their actions over the past uh, number of years. I mean, keep in mind, you know, they say there was no contact between the White House and the Attorney General before this happened. They also said that when Merrick Garland weaponized the FBI to intimidate parents or to go into school board meetings to complain about their children's education. Which was done through the administration, right? That was done through activists in the Department of Education, the Secretary of Education, and then it was sort of like whitewashed through and laundered through to the DOJ. So, you know, that uh, call us skeptical for not no reason, at least. Exactly. But then also keep in mind that this is the same FBI that used the Democrat-funded, campaign-funded Steele dossier as a predicate to spy on the Trump camp. This is the same FBI that, that according to the Justice Department itself, falsified evidence to the FISA court to the point that the FISA court's chief judge issued a statement rebuking them and saying that it calls into question any any information they presented to the FISA court in other cases. This is the same FBI that 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 uh, gave us the 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 let up Mueller, which turned out to be nothing 
but two years and tens of millions of dollars chasing a conspiracy theory that Trump had colluded with Russia. And after that were cleared, uh, after Trump was cleared in that in that investigation, there was a, a Harvard Caps poll that came out that said 53 percent of Americans believe that there was bias in the FBI against Trump and 63 percent wanted a special counsel to be appointed to investigate the FBI. So you have a you have an FBI that has been on a seven year rampage trying to get Trump and 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 lying and and using political dirty tricks in order to do it. And then you ha- and to the point that both the FISA court judge and and the majority of Americans in a poll have said that they don't trust the FBI anymore. So when you have that kind of and, and by of the trust, way, just just to jump in and, and just to jump in, Mark, to, to buttress the point, you also had the Hillary Clinton secret server destroying evidence, destroying tens of thousands of emails, lying about what was in the emails, top secret, highly classified, even above top secret stuff, including about nuclear programs. That was at least one of the you know threads of emails that was in there. That was Hillary Clinton, who did not have the power to declassify things. She egregiously mishandled classified information in a way that could be uh, you know, hacked by foreign powers, and, and a lot of top experts believe that that was almost certainly what happened, uh, unlike putting them in, in boxes in some closet in Mar-a-Lago. I am not downplaying what might have happened here, but Hillary did something very bad. It's not whataboutism just to point out she was not raided. She was not prosecuted. So you, you think about that snapshot of what happened and did not happen to her, then you run through the whole litany that you just did of the FBI in the last couple of years, and you would think that would inform Director Ray and Attorney General Garland's decision-making process on whether to do something like this. And you would think there would be big, loud alarm bells tread as lightly as possible unless there is a hugely compelling reason to escalate to the level that they did. And I am still open, Mark, to the possibility that maybe that hugely compelling reason exists and we'll find out about it. But I am definitely skeptical about it. And if it doesn't exist, I mean, at some point you would think there's going to be some massive accountability that's going to have to come down on these organizations. Yeah, so I'm sick and tired of the phrase whataboutism, because whataboutism, if I looked it up in the dictionary, whataboutism is please don't call me out on my hypocrisy, because that's what that's when anybody talks about whataboutism. That's what they're talking about. Well, I call it I call it aboutism, especially in this. It's aboutism. If we're talking about high ranking government officials mishandling in an egregious way, allegedly in this case, classified information, we have one of the most famous examples ever of that just a few years ago that half the country dismissed and told us was nothing and it was a big joke, and now it's not anymore, and the other side has flipped to the other side as well. Hypocrisy, fine, but this is aboutism. Go on. Yeah, and and so here's the thing. Let's say the FBI was completely justified in, the, in, in doing this. You can't just go and, and do it and not explain it to the American people because they don't trust you. And, they, and when Garland goes out and says, how dare people call into question the FBI's credibility? I'm sorry. The FBI's actions have called into, into, into question its credibility. Garland's actions have called into question his credibility. So you need to... It...
a bit unlawful, but it was certainly unprecedented. And to, when you take an action that is so unprecedented to raid the home of a former president, you better damn well be able to explain to the American people why you did it and justify it, because uh, otherwise uh, that no one no one believes you. You're like the boy who cried wolf. You know, no one believes you when you say that everything's that everything's above board because nothing has been above board for the last seven years. Yeah, you better prove it. And it's a high burden of proof given that context that you just laid out. Mark, a little over a minute left. Uh, the stabbing, the attack of the author Salman Rushdie as he prepared to do a panel or give some remarks in New York. It appears that the suspect uh, was either in cahoots with or in contact with the Iranian regime or a very impassioned sympathizer with the regime. There had been a fatwa put on this author's head decades ago for a supposedly you know, offensive and blasphemous book that he wrote. That fatwa, that mark on his head, you know, a call for assassination, has been active for decades. It was sort of re-upped by the new Supreme Leader on Twitter a few years ago, as a matter of fact. I mean, just quickly your comments on that implications on free speech and that's what the third major plot or attack tied to iran involving americans now in the last couple of weeks i mean that seems significant quickly to you um well number one uh if it had nothing to do with iran then why did jake sullivan the national security advisor put out a statement there are people stabbed in america every day (laughs) but he doesn't put out a statement about it so he knows it's about iran and the fact is this is also the iran we just were were caught trying to get to uh for a $300,000. This is the same regime that uh, that uh, tried to, was was caught and 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 prevented from blowing up a bomb in a restaurant in in Washington D.C. to kill the Saudi ambassador. Yep. So you know this is not. No, and and I think it also, Mark, and you're breaking up a little bit here, but your point I'm catching, and I agree with is it's nuts for us to be negotiating with a regime like this on another matter, considering how much blood is already on their hands. We'll be right back. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks very much for tuning in. Quick follow-up, we can call it the factor follow-up, to a story that we covered last week here on the show involving the New York Times. And it seems like Barry Weiss former editor at the Times, had been sitting on this story for a while. She resigned two years ago, summer of 2020, in a very public, scathing letter about the culture of dysfunction and bullying and intolerance inside the newsroom at the New York Times. So she left. She's built her own little media empire of sorts, a mini-media empire. Her podcast is very popular, her Substack. We talked about this. And she had Tim Scott senator from South Carolina, on her podcast last week because he's promoting his new book, America, A Redemption Story. We had him on this show as well, talking about that for the better part of an hour. And in the course of their discussion, she recalled an incident that happened while she was at the Times. It was during those turbulent days of 2020 where George Floyd had been murdered and there was a lot of I would say, righteous outrage throughout America. And some of the outrage spilled into violence and rioting, which was completely unacceptable. But that was gripping the country. And just after Floyd was killed, Tim Scott had written an op-ed for the New York Times and sent it over to them asking if they would run it. So he submitted it to the New York Times, and they ended up not running it. 
And the backstory, as revealed by Barry Weiss, who was there, was that one of the senior editors at the Times out loud questioned whether Republicans care about minority rights at all. Tim Scott, of course, is a racial minority himself, but this is how progressives think. It's this warped worldview where only people of color of a certain political stripe really count, and if not, you don't really count, and you're suspicious and should be viewed with suspicion. And that wasn't something that this person wondered to himself. It's something that he wondered out loud with other people present and then instructed a subordinate to send Scott's piece over to Chuck Schumer for approval before the Times would run it. And the junior editor thought that was a conflict of interest and inappropriate, did not do that. So Schumer's office never got Tim Scott's op-ed, but a senior editor thought that would be a good idea. Why don't we run it past Chuck? See if Chuck will let us run it, as if Chuck Schumer was the executive editor of the New York Times, sort of the gatekeeper of what's fit to print in the supposed paper of record. What an absolutely embarrassing and scandalous little story from Barry Weiss. And, of course, the conclusion of it was Tim Scott's op-ed as the only black Republican senator in that chamber Given what was happening, I think a very valuable, interesting voice, that op-ed never ran. New York Times said, no, thank you, not interested. So she told that story directly to Tim Scott on the podcast. He expressed surprise and disappointment, but not too much surprise. He said, after all, don't forget another big paper, the Washington Post, fact-checked my whole life, which is actually true. They fact-checked his life story, trying to see if he was exaggerating about his family's misfortune and his extremely humble, hardscrabble beginnings and upbringing. He was not lying, by the way. It was accurate. But they felt like they needed to do that. Because, again, someone like Tim Scott especially is viewed with suspicion. Particularly as he rises through the ranks, gains popularity, gains prominence on a national stage. Let's see if we can take this guy down a peg or two or three. Well, we told you that that was the allegation from Barry Weiss. It sounds like there were, if her story is true, other people who would have witnessed it as well. The New York Times has denied that it happened. Nope, didn't happen. We would never do such a thing. So I was sort of wondering, would this become a she said versus they said unprovable situation? And by the way, I would very much be inclined to trust Barry Weiss over like the official like PR team at the New York Times, perhaps trying to cover for something quite unethical that allegedly happened. But I think also proof is important, which is not doubting Barry's memory or her story, but to say with any definitive clarity what happened I think requires more. Well, enter National Review. Over the weekend, this is the new development, Nate Hockman, who's been on this show, from National Review, published a series of tweets and then a story as well at nationalreview.com. He writes, Scoop, the New York Times has repeatedly denied Barry Weiss's explosive claim that a senior New York Times opinion editor insisted on, quote, checking with Chuck Schumer before running an op-ed by Tim Scott. But messages we've seen from a second source can confirm Weiss's story. 
a source with direct knowledge of the matter, has backed up Weiss's story to National Review. Source also shared the text of messages from a senior New York Times editor insisting that the opinion page check with Schumer and even providing the email address of Schumer's press representative, Justin Goodman. The contents of these messages contradict the New York Times statements and reaffirm Weiss's claims. That a senior editor did, in fact, the New York Times opinion page, question whether Republicans cared about minority rights, then directed a junior editor to send the Scott op-ed to Schumer's office. Well, well, well. So you've got apparently another example here. So you've got evidently much more proof now. A second source who saw this happen and also messages, whether it was on Slack or whether it was text messages or emails, there's some written correspondence backing up what Weiss said. Where this editor, I guess, said, send it to so-and-so, Justin Goodman. Here's a press flag in Schumer's office. Get it over to him, stat. And I guess this person just objected on ethical grounds, never did it. The piece never ran. But what Weiss recalls, I think now we can pretty safely say is true. And the question becomes for the New York Times, did their PR shop in denying all of this, were they ignorant? Did they assume such a thing wouldn't or couldn't have happened, so they decided to just say no, it didn't? Was it ignorance and reflexive damage control? Or was it another knowing lie at this point to cover up the extreme bias that this story exposes? And the allegation from Barry Weiss now corroborated by another source and some written evidence. It is a very bad look for the New York Times, made worse now by this contradiction of their denial. I'm curious what the next step in this will be, or will they just like take the L and hope that most people never hear about this? Extremely revealing and illustrative little episode, is it not? Not terribly shocking or stunning, all things considered, but on some level, it at least should be both of those things. And the Times, once again, appears to have some explaining to do. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Ted Budd will be here, Congressman North Carolina, running for Senate in the Tar Heel State. We'll talk to him about the Mar-a-Lago raid, about inflation, and much more. That's straight ahead. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday... I'm Guy Benson. Thanks so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, plenty of other little goodies on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, on our social media feeds, Twitter and Instagram, 
The handle is the same at Guy Benson Show. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. We actually introduced one of our new neighbors to the Long Drink over the weekend. He had never had it before, and he instantly became a fan, as many of you have become in recent years, as we have been telling you about the Long Drink, sponsor of the happy hour. TheLongDrink.com is their website, TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Joining us here on the show once again is Congressman Ted Budd, a Republican from North Carolina. He is the GOP nominee for the United States Senate in that battle for the open seat in 2022. Big midterm race in the Tar Heel State. And, Congressman, great to have you back. Yeah, it is always great to be with you. Thanks for having me today. Well, just give us a big-picture assessment of where your race stands right now. I know it's kind of... Dog days of summer, August, you know, a lot of hardcore politicos are super interested in looking at every poll, and you're looking awfully close, definitely too close for comfort in a state like North Carolina. But a lot of normal people, average voters, don't really tune into races until September, October. So with all of that context in place, how are you feeling about your race? What are you seeing internally? What are you seeing on the ground in North Carolina? You know, guy, I'm the one that's paid to be nervous in this, so I have to. I've got a lot at stake, and so does North Carolina, and so does our country. I mean, the Senate. You see what the left is doing to try to injure and hurt our country, and everything that I'm doing is working to make life better for North Carolinians and for those in our country. I mean, uh, whether it's inflation, whether it's uh, crime, those are the two issues that people are talking about. I've had the privilege, not just in the primary, but we're continuing to go across the state. We have 100 counties in North Carolina. We've been to all 100 counties, and those themes just keep coming up over and over again. People are concerned about the cost of living going up. Uh, they're, they're concerned about uh, crime and making their cities uh, more dangerous, the loss of life from the opioids. Sheriffs are telling me their counties are now border counties because of Joe Biden's policies. So we just have to tell people that I'm doing everything I can to make life better. Joe Biden and his hopefully, you know, he's trying to make her his colleague and Sherry Beasley, my opponent, is doing everything they can to make life harder on working Americans. So um, it's a very, very clear distinction. Uh, We just have to get our message out and let people know uh, what we're doing. And so far, people are coming on board. But it is always too close for comfort here in North Carolina. Yeah, no, it's super close. And we know that the presidential race was very close there in 2020. The Senate race was very close there in 2020. And so nothing should ever be taken for granted because you never know what might happen. I think that for some of the reasons that you were just describing, you would be the favorite in this race. And part of that also comes down to some of the shamelessness of the spin that we're seeing from the other side. We talked about this near the top of the show today as well, and we mentioned it, of course, last week. When you talk to North Carolinians who are paying more for almost everything, and we saw that the inflation number was slower than it was in June in the July numbers, but still right around 40-year highs, 8.5% is still a raging inflation problem. And a lot of that was because of fuel prices coming down. So gas prices were down and airfares were down. That was disproportionately what impacted the slightly better number, Uh, although there was a lot of concern that gas prices might head north again in the fall. We've seen some analysts talking about that. Others are saying that that reduction is because of a reduction in demand, which usually isn't a great sign. 
But on other key commodities that people see every day, food, electricity, rent, those are all even higher than they were in June. And, Congressman, when you're out there doing your day job and also campaigning for hopefully your next job in the Senate and you're talking to people who are feeling that, how do they react when they hear the president and his whole team at the White House say, well, what we really experienced was 0% inflation in July? You know, it's an embarrassing spin from the Biden White House. They're very desperate to change the subject. And no amount of spin from that White House can convince working families that they're doing well when they aren't. I mean, I'm having moms out there that are saying they're having to choose between putting gas in their car, groceries on their table, or buying back-to-school clothes, which is on us this, these very weeks. So, I mean, it really comes down to, it really comes down to the question of you know, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Joe Biden or Sherry Beasley, his surrogate here in North Carolina, or are you going to believe your own wallet? And North, Carolina's, uh, North Carolinians are believing their own wallet. They, they, they realize how much ex- more expensive things are. I'm talking to energy companies that are, you know, keeping the lights on for us. They're saying, like, they're doing everything they can to with contracts for their energy inputs. But right now, with, with the Biden administration, the prices are going up. They're going to have their second uh, price increase on electricity here in North Carolina. And the costs are just driving everything up. Uh, you know, you, get, you come down a few cents uh, on uh, our petroleum prices, but we realize that there's so many other things, Guy, where the prices are going up on, and that's what North Carolinians are feeling right now. There is not a doubt in my mind that Sherry Beasley, if she were in the Senate already, and hopefully that will never happen, but if she were hypothetically, she would have been a yes with Chuck Schumer, well, on everything, but including this so-called Inflation Reduction Act that the Democrats just put through in a totally party-line vote through both houses of Congress. As you look at that piece of legislation, what the Democrats will say is, well, some of them will still cling to the title where they're saying it's going to reduce inflation, although a lot of them are even abandoning that because it's, it's such a silly talking point. Even Bernie Sanders doesn't believe it. But that's what they named the bill, right? So that should matter. And they're saying oh, this is this historic investment in climate and that kind of thing. Then there's the tax and spend and IRS side of it as well. You were a no on this in the House. Talk about the stakes of that legislation and Chuck Schumer having another vote and rubber stamp in the U.S. Senate if your opponent were to win. So, it, it, I mean, it obviously leads to higher taxes. It doubles the size of the IRS. It's green giveaways to the wealthy. It's bottom, bottom line. We see what they want to do. The Democrats want to raise your taxes. Republicans want to lower them. Democrats want to hire more IRS agents. We want to hire more police and Border Patrol. Democrats, you know, <laughs> look at these green giveaways, guys. And we see that basically they want to help rich folks buy a Tesla. When Republicans, we want to lower the price of gas for these working families that I was just talking about that are having to choose between groceries or back-to-school clothes. So it's, it's never been more clear. And, and we know what we need to do. The things that I would support would be about stopping spending, stopping over-regulating, and starting producing American energy again. And that's how we make life better for everyone. We are now around the one-year anniversary this week in this little time frame right now of the debacle in Afghanistan. The president's communications director said, I just saw earlier, that there are no regrets about the policy there. Looking back a year later, Congressman, what is your thought on what happened and the legacy of that meltdown? I'm in a veteran community today uh, in our state that has so many folks that have served uh, in, in that war and in prior wars. 
and we have such a military presence here in North Carolina. But bottom line, Biden's withdrawal was a disgrace, and we still haven't seen accountability from it. it you know, it, I, I'm even sending letters out asking about a potential cover-up. We're still not hearing anything on them. You know, we lost the lives of 13 Marines that day, and countless more were, were injured. And, and what it really did, I mean, we talk about the problems in Ukraine, the emboldening of Iran, North Korea, uh, Russia, China, which is saber-rattling at Taiwan. That was so predictable because of what Biden did or did not do in Afghanistan. When you put American weakness on display, it not only hurts our veterans, it not only hurts those who are currently serving and hurts their morale, it, it makes our country less safe, it makes the world less safe. And that's all at the feet of Joe Biden and everyone who enables his program. Lastly, Congressman, your thoughts on the Mar-a-Lago raid and just overall sort of your reaction to that. And then we've heard from some people in the Republican Party about, you know, abolishing the FBI or defunding the FBI. Where do you come down on that? What would accountability potentially look like in your mind? You know, that's absolutely unprecedented uh, in our nearly 250 year history as a country. Uh, And when you see on the heels of uh, this so-called investment or what do you call it, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, that if they're going to hire 87,000 more IRS agents and then they can do this to Trump, they're going to – IRS is going to do it to everyday men and women. So they're coming after regular working people just like they're coming after President Trump. What we need is transparency. I think we need testimony from the Biden Department of Justice. Because, uh, you know, AG, we need A.G. Garland to come before Congress. We need FBI Director Ray to come immediately before Congress. Because I think this sort of politicization, it undermines faith in our institutions. And we need institution, institutions that we can trust, Guy. And right now, everything the Democrats are doing erode that. So I'm calling for transparency. Come before Congress. Um, is this a current sitting president using the U.S. government and taxpayer dollars to attack a prior president? That's that's unprecedented and it's uncalled for. And those are the questions we're going to ask about. Ted Budd is a Republican congressman from North Carolina. And in that state, he is the GOP nominee for the U.S. Senate in a very important race down there. Congressman, great to talk to you. We'll talk again, I'm sure. Look forward to it, guy. Thank you. And the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show, a new week here. Thank you very much for tuning in. Well, I just cannot resist playing you this soundbite. Maybe you saw it over the weekend on social media. Maybe not. This was on Friday. The vice president of the United States was back in Oakland, California, her old stomping grounds. That's where she launched her presidential campaign in 2019 with a big splash and a huge crowd and lots of buzz. And on paper... A very good chance of becoming the nominee based on what the Democrats were looking for. And then she actually was a candidate. And people looked at that candidate and her performance on the stump and in debates and said, ooh, you know, pass. And her support plummeted to the point that she dropped out of the race before a single vote was cast, starting in Iowa. I mean, to go from a frontrunner and a top-tier candidate, as she sneeringly called herself when she was taking a shot at Tulsi Gabbard, I believe, 
back when she was that, a first-tier candidate, top-tier candidate, to not even in the race anymore within that span of time, burning through all that money and interest and goodwill and sort of a lot of people, I think, in the media eager to line up behind someone like Kamala Harris. I mean, that really is a feat. But she's, in that sense, very talented, managing to underperform expectations so dramatically that it's memorable. And yet none of that really prevented her, obviously, from becoming the vice president of the United States because ultimately Joe Biden recognized the type of person that he needed to run with, given the Democratic coalition, and it's sort of like, well, I guess this is who we've got. Even though reportedly the first lady now, Jill Biden, or uh, excuse me, Dr. Jill Biden, was not happy about the pick because she was still mad that Kamala Harris had basically come after Joe as a racist. That was the implication during that famous little girl school busing story. But politics is politics. Bygones were bygones. So this is now the woman that they stuck on the ticket, and they ran the basement campaign. It was all about Trump. The American people said that they were tired of Trump, and now we have this crew in here. You've got Joe Biden at the top. Whether he's all there all the time or not, he's at the top. The buck stops with him. We've got all these failures of policy happening. And then we have... Kamala Harris, who just seems to drift from one event to another with everyone just waiting on pins and needles for whatever she might uncork in terms of a memorable and ridiculous soundbite. And we've made a whole long montage of them over the last year and a half. This one probably won't get added to the montage. She wasn't so much repeating herself a lot in this soundbite as she was just spewing out a bunch of, like, consultant buzz phrases that mean absolutely nothing. She says a lot of words that kind of sound smart-ish and involve some sophisticated-ish or, like, faux sophistication in the turns of phrase and that kind of thing. But if you listen, for nearly one full minute... I defy you to actually identify what on earth she's actually saying, what the point is. So get ready for a lot of word salad, filler words, and buzz phrases, and the latest in the catalog of Vice President Kamala Harris from Oakland, California, on Friday, Cut 25. We know that we really are quite behind in terms of maximizing our collective understanding about how we will engage on the technology of today and what we can quickly and easily predict will be the technology over the next decades. So to maintain our position as the United States of America on this issue, it is critical that we work together to understand where we are, to recognize and have the courage to speak truth about what is obsolete, and then to partner to ensure that we are speaking the same language with the same motivation, inspired by the opportunity of it all, but then doing the work of updating how we have been talking and thinking about our exploration in space. Ultimately, I guess this was about space exploration. 
as you got from the very last word there. Maximizing our collective understanding, engaging on the technology of today, maintaining our position as the United States of America on this issue, recognizing and having the courage to speak truth, speaking the same language, with motivation inspired by the opportunity of it all, and updating how we've been talking and thinking about our exploration. Oh, I was just hoping she would use the word synergy at some point and just put a cherry on top of that. Many words were said. The actual point, perhaps, is floating somewhere in a galaxy far, far away, which is where it often seems that her rhetorical skills are coming from, because they are not of this world. At least that's the way it feels. Quite often, actually. I got a kick out of that one. Actually, we had some people over this weekend. Mixed politics, you know, we're all friends, but don't always agree on everything. We played that clip, and everyone got a laugh. Like, what is she talking about? Even people who voted for her. So in that sense, she's bringing people together. There actually is a special synergy about that, isn't there? The Guy Benson Show. Happy Hour continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour on this Monday. Thanks for listening. Earlier today, we caught up with Bill Malugin, our colleague here at Fox News, who is covering the border crisis, unlike really anyone else in journalism. A lot more information from Bill today. It's important. Here's part of that discussion. Do you have any sense of what the July numbers are going to look like? When will we get those? What are you hearing? Yes, I'm hearing they're going to be a little bit lower than June. Uh, Multiple Border Patrol sources tell me on their end they were just north of about 180,000 apprehensions last month. That does not include CBP's OFO, that's Office of Field Operations, which are the ports of entry. So that number will go up a little bit more. Uh, But July could potentially be the first month in, I think, four or five months where we are under 200,000. Now, again, that could be because... Uh, July is one of the hottest months out here down at the border, and we now have more single adults coming across rather than family units. Keep in mind, when it was family units, everybody gets counted, right? Mom, dad, two little kids. Now we're having massive groups of single adults, more than 60% of what's coming across. So they're just counted as one person each. But from what I'm hearing, uh, the numbers are going to be a little bit lower than June, and I could get those numbers as soon as the end of the day today. Typically, DHS has to file a court filing on the 15th of each month. Um, where they, it's part of a lawsuit against uh, with Texas and Missouri. They reported on the 15th their numbers, their monthly numbers, and today's the 15th. So I'm anticipating I should be able to get those numbers by the end of the day. Um, but it sounds like July might be a little bit lower uh, than June. But if you look at the big picture, say if we go back to July of 2020, it's probably going to be four, five times bigger than July 2020. In terms of gotaways, it seems like the estimates that you've gotten have been pretty consistent in the 50,000 a month range. Does that sound about right again based on what you've heard and seen? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The gotaways stay pretty consistent. They usually bounce between low 50s to high 50s of, of, you know, 50,000 to 60,000 gotaways per month. Um, Just since the fiscal year started on October 1st, um, multiple Border Patrol and DHS sources confirmed there have been more than half a million um, 
confirmed gotaways. And when you add that with the roughly 400,000 of fiscal year 2021, we're pushing over 900,000 now. Before this year's over, we will have hit more than 1 million gotaways at the southern border. More than a million gotaways. And that's, you know, I know we talk about this. Sometimes people say, oh, you, you can't claim that the border's open or not secure because so many of these numbers are about the people getting caught. And if they're getting caught, then it means that the border is secure. Well, we're, we're closing it on a million people that we know of who have gotten away. Not to mention the unknown gotaways. They're not, you know, that's an unknowable number of people. But we're closing it on a million known gotaways. And then, of course, there's just the sort of catch and release policy where people technically get caught, processed, and then released into the country in huge numbers. And a lot of them never show up for court dates. And so that's like another form of sort of de facto open borders, even though technically there's, you know, a processing point along the way. Bill, I have to ask you then, and it's related, Title 42, we heard from Congressman Gonzalez, who represents South Texas. He was on the show last week. He says in his estimation from what he's seeing, they are basically, the administration is phasing out enforcement of Title 42, and and those sort of, you know, removals from the country are, are trickling down to a very small flow. And now, formally, the Remain in Mexico policy is gone. What impact do those two policies have on the broader picture? Well, they are barely enforcing Title 42. Just to give you an idea, just a few days ago out here, uh, about 1,970 people came across in one day, and only 370 were expelled via Title 42. That's only about like 19%. In Yuma, Arizona sector, there were 699 crossings. Only five people were expelled via Title 42. That's less than 1%. So they are barely using it in certain sectors. The reason why it's not being used here in Del Rio sector is because most of the people crossing are Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans. And Mexico won't take them back, and neither will their home countries. So we can't expel them, and their home countries won't take them back. So the only thing we're able to do under this administration is release them. Now, the Biden administration hasn't made any effort to change that. They haven't tried twisting Mexico's arm. They haven't tried calling their home countries and cutting some sort of a deal. They're just letting it happen. They mass release them. And that is why we see these massive numbers of these demographics showing up here every single day, waving to our cameras, asking us, where do we find Border Patrol? Can you call them for us? They want to be caught because they know they're going to get released. They have no fear of being removed from the country or deported. They know once they get here, they're in. It's that simple. Then there are the people who don't want to get caught because they would get arrested. They've got felony records and that kind of thing. We have no idea and can't know how many of them are represented in the Godaway population, which is a large source of concern to me. But we do see in the encounters on a consistent basis, you always report on them, Bill, and I know the Border Patrol guys will tweet out and send out lists and that sort of thing. There's also a steady stream of people that are getting caught, to say nothing of those who aren't getting caught, on the public safety side of it. And I feel like we have virtually the same conversation every month, and yet we're going to keep telling the story until something changes. And so feel free, if in the time that we have left, to weigh in on that point, because that's another interminable factor that just keeps coming that represents – an actual public safety threat as well, on top of all the other issues. You're absolutely right. Look, just in the last couple of days alone, 
Uh, Border Patrol here in Del Rio sector caught a convicted rapist with a, a conviction for forcible sodomy. In Miami, Florida sector, they caught a Haitian on a boat with 100 other Haitians who's a convicted child sex offender. He was convicted of fondling a child as well as kidnapping. And then just yesterday, Border Patrol in Tucson, Arizona report, they caught a Mexican national who crossed illegally uh, who has a previous conviction for first-degree manslaughter in New York City. That's just two days, and those are just a few of the ones they caught. My full interview with Bill Malugin, Fox News national correspondent, down at the border, so often focused on that crisis. It's on our website at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast. Every day, on demand, the whole show in its entirety. No charge to you at all. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Bill Maher, still on a roll, this time setting his sights on Hollywood and the silliness of the identity obsessives. We'll play you some of that audio as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Monday edition, here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening every single weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern. If you miss any of the show, you miss a lot, we have a podcast on demand and free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. Well, on Friday night, Bill Maher was on his HBO show, Real Time, and he did one of his monologues, as he does every week, this time focusing in on and taking aim at the cultural sort of identitarian obsessives, people who are super woke, constantly fighting over identity, real time. And he decided to devote one of his now famous monologues to taking on the identity obsessives in Hollywood. This is nothing new. We talk about wokeness and the identitarians all the time on this show. And one sort of skirmish within that broader culture war is over something that they call appropriation. And we've seen this in the context of food, where if a chef has a dish at a restaurant that comes from a different culture, especially if it's a white chef, that person is appropriating the other culture. And we've had people groveling and apologizing for that. It's just crazy. It's like the idea of sharing different cultural notions and traditions and flavors and other things into a big, happy American melting pot, that is seen as anathema. Certainly within this particular sort of strain of leftism that is so dominant in big, heavy elements of our culture, taste-making institutions, Hollywood very much being near the front of the list. And their version of appropriation these days is Big battles and fights, and this has been happening for the last couple of years, over casting decisions. If it is determined that there's not enough of a certain X group represented in a film, and we saw this, for example, we talked about Lin-Manuel Miranda getting raked over the coals because he did a whole musical that turned into a successful movie in the Heights about Washington Heights in New York City. And it was a whole movie focused on people of color and Latinos in general. 
but it didn't have enough people of certain skin shades to appease some of these folks. So therefore, it was a problem, and they came after him. That's like one little snippet of this kind of thing. Then, if you have someone cast as a role, and it doesn't align with their identity in real life, the actor's identity in real life, if there's deemed to be a misalignment in a way that that is you know, unacceptable or unfair or problematic or appropriation, that's another sort of hot take that gets shared far and wide. And sometimes you have people declining roles or apologizing and studios doing damage control, and it just gets so silly. And Bill Maher decided to really put a finer point on all of this. Over the course of eight or nine minutes, we will not play you all of it. We don't have time. But just a couple examples of him taking his shots, I think deserved shots, at this entire mentality. Let's listen to Cut 26. Federal casting directors have to stop listening to the casting police and go back to doing their job, which is picking the best actor for the role. Now, I mention this because a lot of people lately are either apologizing for or calling on others to apologize for playing roles they call appropriation. James Franco was just chosen to play Fidel Castro, and John Leguizamo posted, No more appropriation. Boycott. This up. I don't got a problem with Franco, but he ain't Latino. Okay, but John Leguizamo is Colombian-American. He ain't a Venetian, but he played one. He ain't a French little person. Or an Italian plumber, but he played them too. Because he's an actor. Why the hell do you think people become actors? Because they want to spend their life not being who they are. Which is a pretty good dig at the very end there. And we sliced out some of the applause just to keep this moving along. But Leguizamo's Colombian. Would that be okay for a Colombian to play a Cuban? Or is it just because James Franco isn't Latino at all that he shouldn't be playing Castro? Like, what exactly are the rules here? And as Mar points out, and he put on the screen, Leguizamo's played all sorts of characters and roles featuring people of different ethnicities that don't apply to his actual heritage in real life, including Luigi the plumber in like a Mario movie. Is that appropriation of Italian-American culture or Italian culture? Should Leguizamo be boycotted because he was calling on this film to be boycotted? Because of it, due to the so-called appropriation. It's just exhausting. Mar continued in Cut 27. Appropriating sounds like an unforgivable sin until you remember that's what acting is. That's why acting jobs are called roles. Sean Penn won an Oscar for playing gay civil rights martyr Harvey Milk. At the time, it was considered a courageous act of solidarity for a straight male movie star to play a homosexual. Now it's the opposite. Eddie Redmayne played a transgender woman in The Danish Girl, but now calls that a mistake because many people don't have a chair at the table. Well, actually, in movies now, they do. And what does it have to do with you playing trans? Does it then work the other way? Can trans actors only play trans characters? Because that's not going to be a good deal for them. Right. I mean, think about the number of roles available there. If you're a trans actor, 
with an opportunity to play a cisgender person in a movie, would that be appropriation? Or is there a certain hierarchy of grievance and a certain, I don't know, like totem pole of marginalization? And depending on where you fit in that scheme of things, then there are different standards for you as opposed to other people. It doesn't make any sense. I'm glad that he brought up the Sean Penn example of Harvey Milk. He also mentioned Tom Hanks in the movie Philadelphia. And Tom Hanks was quoted, I guess, more recently saying, oh, well, that was then, that really wouldn't be acceptable or appropriate anymore now because we're beyond that. We moved beyond that. But as Mar said, that's actually not progress. That's regression. Can only gay actors play gay roles? Can only straight actors play straight roles? Should actors have to declare, male, female, or whatever, should they have to declare all of their identities ahead of time in order for casting directors to make decisions about what roles they're even eligible to play. And could that put people in very awkward positions where they have to reveal things themselves that are private or they don't necessarily want other people to know about? And it shouldn't matter really at all in life, especially in an industry where the whole point is to play and pretend that you are someone else. As Mar points out, that is literally the definition of acting. It's in the word. Finally, this from Mar Cut 28. Is that what diversity and inclusion look like now? Everybody's staying in their lane? Lawrence of Arabia was gay. Peter O'Toole wasn't. I can live with that. Because he was so cool, he almost made me gay. (laughs) Emma Stone caught hell for playing a Hawaiian, Jake Gyllenhaal for playing a Persian, Gal Gadot for wanting to play Cleopatra, Johnny Depp for playing an Indian, even though he's not an actual Comanche, and spoiler alert, he also doesn't really have scissor hands. (laughs) And he's not actually a drunken pirate. Okay, bad example. So he made it entertaining. He made the point several different ways. And I think it's a good one. And I'm not saying that there's not ever a legitimate conversation or debate to have about what types of roles ought to be played by certain types of people. And if there's been a group that's been shut out of roles through all of, you know, history or whatever, and there's an opportunity for someone like, you know, a disabled person to play that role authentically Does it make sense to then cast an able-bodied person when someone else could do it just as well who's actually lived that experience? I mean, it's sort of an interesting discussion to have. But the knee-jerk offense-taking about all of it and just the bleep storm that seems to arise each time probably has a lot of movie studios and casting directors, etc., thinking long and hard about what the mob might say based on their casting decisions. And does that sound like the best formula for successful, moving drama and entertainment? Or does that sound like yet another box-checking, wokeified exercise that makes art worse and culture less rich? 
I know which side Bill Maher comes down on. And as is weirdly often the case these days, I agree with him. At least I lean that direction for sure. We are out of time for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be right back here tomorrow, same time and same place, for The Guy Benson Show. We'll talk to you then. Have a great night. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.